Okay, well, this is the uh, second week of August, and as is tradition here, we have collected some questions from you, and this is kind of our second question and answer sermon, usually because a lot of people are gone in August, some people are visiting, some people are gone. I like to spend a couple weeks just answering your Bible questions, and so uh, I also want you to know that some of you ask such great questions that I wanted, I like to answer the hardest ones, to tell you the truth. I like hard questions. The problem with hard questions is if you don't answer them thoroughly enough, then they create more questions and it backfires. So there were some questions I wanted to answer, but I knew it would take me at least an entire sermon, maybe three or four. And so I thought I better not go there because we don't have that much time. So I'm sorry. Um, You should be able to find in the back a handout um, with uh, the questions that were asked and the answers to those questions, many of those questions on the website. I would encourage you to do that. And if you didn't get that, then just ask one of the elders or pastors and we'll get you the answer to your question as best we can. So for this morning, we're going to start off with a very good question. I was very tempted to do the whole sermon on this question too because it's so fun and practical and relevant to today. And this is the question. What role do emotions play in worship? How much weight should we place upon them? Recently, I visited a Roman Catholic contemporary worship service. Though I do not agree with many of the doctrines and practices of the Roman Catholic Church, the music, the lyrics, and singing time were great. I was very blessed and moved. Other times, because of the choice of songs or how things are arranged at Calvary Bible Church or whatever, I don't feel emotionally moved, though the songs uh, and the words... The lyrics are good. In light of all this, what kind of weight or importance should we place upon our emotions and their role in worship? And so it's a great question. You know, sometimes you may be sitting there on a certain Sunday morning and it's just almost like you're levitating off the ground. It is so great. Everything seems to be great. You're focused on God. You're just praising him. It's just wonderful. Other times you just feel like a big dirt clod, you know, you're, you're just, you're distracted. You know, you're thinking about the pot roast or the laundry or the work project you got to do. I mean, whatever it is. And you just, your nah, your mouth's moving and noise is coming out, but it's just not working. And so the question is a good question. What about emotions? How do emotions fit into all that? And if your emotions are lined up with what you like and, and everything seems to be great, is that good? And what if they're not there? Is that bad? I mean, these are great questions. These are great questions. I just want you to know, you can get a lot of the, this answered in a more detailed way in the series on the website, Sermons. Uh, the series on worship, and yeah, you can get a lot of it there. But I just want to um, first begin by kind of uh, stating a problem and a movement that is relevant to all of us and our culture and really the world that we kind of need to understand of how we got to the place where we're at because people don't understand worship. And what I mean by that is this. What has happened is there has arisen a whole bunch of philosophies of doing ministry that are designed to try to get people churched. What that means is, is to get them into a building that is called where some local body of believers meets. But the problem is, is that doesn't make them churched. Repenting of your sins and believing in Jesus Christ as your savior is what makes you part of the church. Now, you can be part of the local church, that is, attend a local church and then perish in hell. But you haven't really been churched until you've believed in the Lord Jesus Christ unto salvation. Now, a lot of people desiring to save the lost have constructed certain forms of worship to appeal to unbelievers. I am going to do worship to draw them in, drama to draw them in, skits to draw them in, uh, make it light to draw them in, leave everything negative out to draw them in. And so pretty soon worship is about giving unbelievers what they want so they can be drawn into a building where, quote, the church is so they can, quote, be churched. This just is a nightmare. 
It's a nightmare because what it has done is it's created music and worship. And when I say worship, I say it in quotes because it's not. But quote, worship, that is man-centered, which of course makes it not worship at all, but what? Idolatry. Idolatry. Now, you think, well, that's a pretty strong word. It is a strong word, and that's why I used it on purpose. Idolatry, there. Um, What is worship? Let's just start with worship. Talk about that. Then talk about emotions and then look at some texts on emotions and then try to figure out how emotions fit with worship. What is worship? How could we define worship? What is biblical worship? Here it is. Biblical worship is anything we do in the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God according to the word of God. Notice music wasn't mentioned. That's what worship is. Anything we do. That just kind of throws everything out of balance to a lot of people's thinking. Many people go to church to get something out of the worship service. Think about that. I mean, there's nothing wrong with Worshiping corporately with God's people being blessed when you're singing and leave thinking, man, I I love the singing. Which is what people most people think about when they think of worship singing. Yet really worship is about giving God what he wants. Not getting what we want. So if you go to a church or a service or some sort of Christian thing and you leave going I didn't like the worship. Why? Well, it just wasn't what I wanted. What you're really saying is, is I wasn't able to practice idolatry comfortably enough. And so I'm not going back there. You think, well, what? Are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. The real question should be when you go someplace, is God getting what he wants from believers who are living in the spirit, who are obeying the word of God because they desire to give God glory. That should be the question. And specifically, is that what I'm doing? So there's this misconception about what worship is. And few people are concerned about God getting what he deserves. Which is what we should all be concerned about. Not we getting what we deserve. Second misconception is that music itself is worship. Think about that. You know, only people who are born again, who are not living in sin, can worship God. Music never worships. People worship, and we can worship through music, but music itself is not worship. People worship related to this is a third misconception that singing to music is the one way of worship. You know, sometimes people think that when they come to a service like the one we've had this morning, that first we came and we kind of had the worship part of the service. And now we have the preaching part. No. We should have been worshiping, having been worshiping, we should have come in worshiping, continued to worship and worship God in singing, worship God in fellowship, worship God in giving, worship God in the hearing of his word, leave worshiping God and to keep worshiping God. You see that? It's not something you do at a point. Now, granted, you can come to a location for corporate worship, which is one kind of worship or worship setting, but... You don't just, you don't just worship when you, you, you're singing songs to God. A lot of people also don't realize this, and I like to just point this out because in so many churches today, you go and they sing and sing and sing and sing and sing, which is fine. I mean, we sing, we sing a lot, but they might sing an hour, hour and 15 minutes, and then maybe have a 15 minute devotion. 
And they go, well, what's wrong with that? Well, think about this. In the law of Moses, which is pretty extensive, you have to agree, right? God gave all those rules and all those regulations about everything they were supposed to do. Not a single command to sing. Now, think about that. Think about this. This just struck me one time. Every once in a while, you know, I have a lot of people trying to tell me what I need to do and what I shouldn't do. So when that happens... I just sit down and I read first Timothy, second Timothy and Titus and remind me uh, to remind me of what God wants me to do. And then I just do that and everybody can just bear up, I guess. But when I was reading it one time, I thought, you know, I'm, these, these books are written to pastors of churches. They're contained in the New Testament so that believers, specifically leaders in the church, will know how Christians ought to conduct themselves in the household of God. Not one exhortation to sing. I was like, that is so amazing to me. Many exhortations to preach and teach and pray. Zero to sing. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't any exhortations to sing. I just go to the Psalms. The Psalms are inspired, but they're not part of the law of Moses. And there are texts in the New Testament which tell Christians they need to be singing. But they aren't specifically in relationship to corporate worship. Let's look at one of them. Colossians chapter 3 verse 16. Colossians 3 verse 16, which I think is the most significant text in the New Testament related to Christians and singing. And here is what Paul says. He's just, he's kind of kind of argued for the supremacy of Christ in the first couple chapters. And then uh, he says, if you're a Christian, you know, you need to set your mind in the things above verse two. Um, and uh, your life, you have died. and Your life is hidden with Christ and God. And so he's, he's, he's talking about how we need to have this perspective just as Christians in general. We aren't necessarily talking about when you gather together for corporate worship. It's just Christians in general. And then he says this, which is parallel to, and we aren't going to look at it. Ephesians chapter five, verse 18, you know, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit singing one of their Psalms, hymns and spiritual songs that text. This is a parallel text, but this is, this is a good Notice what he says in verse 16, chapter three, Colossians, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now here, an outflow of a person who's walking with God And if you look at the parallel, who's walking in the spirit with uh, Ephesians five, who has God's word dwelling in them richly, will sing psalms, Old Testament, and these spiritual songs, that is songs that are directed and saturated with the word of God. That is kind of the natural outflow of a believer. You know, even though there are no exhortations to sing in the law of Moses, yet you still have the song of Moses. Isn't that Deuteronomy 15 or something um, where Moses, you know, goes off in a song. So, yeah, we're not saying song sings bad. I just want to make a point that it is not commanded in corporate worship in either the pastoral epistles or in the law of Moses. And that should tell us something. There are priorities And so if it's not commanded in corporate worship, that means music. Get ready for this. In corporate worship is optional. Now you say that in some churches, they probably stone you to death. (laughs) Now, is it fine? Yeah, and we do it and we'll continue to do it. But when it comes down to specific exhortations to churches in the context of corporate worship, not there. You find in Revelation, there's even singing in heaven. But is it commanded? Not in that context. So singing's good. Music's good. As long as the emphasis is teaching and admonishing with those psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. There's got to be biblical content in the songs. Unbiblical content, of course, would not be good. The problem, though, is 
sometimes people say things and, you know, I think they aren't trying to be, you know, cause any grief or anything. And I think we just kind of fall into these things where we come in and say, you know, I really like the worship today. Or can't we wait until, you know, we gather together for worship again which is fine if what they mean is I can't wait till we have corporate worship, which is kind of fun to sing with all the believers. It's great. But, you know, when somebody says something like this, well, you know, we were coming to Calvary for a time and we like the teaching. But we like the worship better at the other church. Now, what does that tell you? That tells you they don't know what worship is. Because the listening to God's word preach is worship. Giving is worship. Life is worship for a believer. And to say that we are going to go to another place because we like the music better is to take what is mandated, jettison it for what is optional. And this is a problem. Turn to Romans chapter 12 verse 1. Romans 12, verse 1. This kind of fix our whole mindset about worship because so many people are confused about this. They don't even know what it is. And this is a great text. This is Paul has spent 11 chapters preaching on doctrine, 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 doctrine. And when he gets to Romans 12, 1, he then begins to tell them how to apply that doctrine. And he says this, Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, Brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Notice here that we are to always be in the process of presenting our bodies. We are to figuratively speak, speak and crawl upon the altar of sacrifice to God, live up on that altar in obedience to God in a holy and acceptable way, which means it must be according to the word of God. And so he says, this is your spiritual service. What? Always living for the glory of God. That is your spiritual service of worship. Turn to John chapter four. So we are to worship God. We all the time. Now turn to John four. This is another um, text. And again, if you look at the series on, on worship, you'll get all these in large doses, but we're just kind of surveying them quickly. John chapter four, verses 23 and 24. Jesus goes to the well, woman at the well. Um, the disciples are gone. He begins to talk to her, exposes her sin. She's had all these husbands. She's living in immorality with another man. She's kind of convicted. She wants to change the subject off of herself onto anything else. So she brings up the big debate between Jews and Samaritans at the time, which was, where's the best place to worship? Is it in Jerusalem of the temple or on Mount Gerizim? And so she's now tried to divert the attention away from herself. And Jesus goes there and lets her know that location um, has nothing to do with worship. And he after he says, it doesn't matter whether you're worshiping in Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim. And he says this in verse 23. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. For such people, the father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, what is obviously clear here is that if you're going to be a true worshiper, an acceptable worshiper, then you need to worship in spirit and truth. And by in spirit, it's not in Holy Spirit, though that would be true, but with your spirit. That is, you worship God according to the truth, but you engage your spirit. Don't just go through the external motions. You got to get your heart in there, your mind, your emotions involved in it. Now, let's just talk about emotions a little bit more. You remember the great command it's quoted in several contexts in the Gospels. Matthew twenty two thirty seven. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul 
and with all your mind. And you know where that comes from? That comes from um, Deuteronomy chapter 6 um, and uh, verses 4 and 5, which has what uh, the Jews like to call the great Shema. Shema being the word for here. It is here, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, some quotation of the New Testament, throw in strength in there. But heart, mind, and soul are three synonyms that definitively include what? Emotions. So that great command by which all the laws of the Old Testament, all the laws of the New Testament hang, everything is built off of loving God. All of that includes emotions. You got to love God with your emotions. It's necessary. So that's clear. Vulcan worship doesn't work. (laughs) Vulcan worship doesn't work. That's not acceptable to God. You've got to get your emotions in there. Now, I know this doesn't sound very spiritual. What that means then, if we are to worship God all the time, if we are to do it with our heart, mind, soul, spirit, strength, everything, then that means... Doing the dishes, mowing the lawn, balancing the checkbook, driving in traffic, emailing a friend are all to be forms of what? Worship. Whenever we live in the power of the Holy Spirit, according to the word of God, for his glory, we are worshiping. And we should do that how often? all the time all the time now that doesn't mean that corporate worship doesn't exist and isn't a form of worship and it doesn't mean that corporate worship through singing can't be part of that because it can but i just want you to be clear that you are to engage your emotions but emotions are very fickle a very fickle emotions you know sometimes make us feel good and Sometimes they make us feel bad, but that doesn't mean worship is acceptable or not acceptable. One person, let's say, we're singing some, you know, old hymn to some of you young people, maybe some old, archaic, dusty, petrified hymn, you know, leapy, lame for joy and weird things, ye monsters of the deep arise. And you're sitting there going, this thing's old. The tune's weird. I don't understand the words. And then there's the old saint over there, tears pouring down their cheek, going, I love this song. (laughs) And then there's that chorus. And the old person says, can we just quit saying it over? (laughs) Can we just say it once? Now, what about the drums? Could you just get rid of those? And we need the electric guitar. And, you know, we're just, we're tired of this and we're tired of that. And, you know, these things bother us. And, okay, so what? Are the lyrics good? Okay. Who worships? You do. You worship. The music doesn't worship. The tune doesn't worship. You worship. So if the worship's bad, (laughs) you're bad. You getting this? This isn't a shopping mall. I mean, granted, a lot of people look at it that way. You know, hey, man, I go to that mall. I didn't have the stores I want, so I'm leaving to go to the other one. Well, it's not about you. It's about God getting what he wants. You go to the mall and you say, does God have the stores he wants here? And if God's getting what he wants, that's the place. You bring your emotions in tow. But you don't say, well, you aren't giving me what I want. And then it just betrays that you're not worshiping God at all. You're there for self satisfaction. 
The heart of the worshiper is what makes the big deal. You could take a a similar scenario where you have some person who this hymn's playing. It's like, I love this hymn. But they're not worshiping God. Why? Because the whole time they're thinking, I'm finally glad they played this thing. I wonder how I can't even remember the last time they played this song. The young people need to hear this. Look at the words on this. This is good. What's wrong with those? And the whole time they're grumbling. They're complaining about this great hymn. (laughs) Do you see that? That is unacceptable. Meanwhile, (coughs) somebody has come in and they're, they've never heard the song before in their life. You know, they're in high school and they've come in and they're going, whoa, you know, this has got a weird tune. And the melody is hard to follow. I don't even understand all these words, but God, I am so glad to be here. And you are such a great God. I'm going to sing along the best I can. And that person's worshiping God, where the other person who loves the hymn, who sings it with ease, who is very pleased by it, may not be worshiping God. And their feelings might be totally different. Though they both have emotions, one is offering acceptable worship and the other is not. And believe me, when you're involved in picking songs for a church like this, and we have a lot of old people and young people, and we got a great mixture, we're going to try and keep it that way. We're not going to take the old people and go, well, thanks for building the church and working all these years here. Go in this other room and listen to the organ and your old hymns, man. We're rocking, you know. Um, <laughs> we're not going to do that. Um, you, 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 you begin to have to start working through this. And, you know, let's just say that, you know, you're Tim and you're the worship leader. And all of a sudden you go up there and, you know, and there's your box. And, 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 and you, it's stuffed full. And you kind of pull out all of this stuff. And there's a little scotch sticky that says, look down. And there on the floor is this other big pile of free music, demo music. So you haul this stuff down with your, you know, dolly down to the other end and dump it all in your desk you start opening through as fast you can and sort out all the trash and stack it all up there and you pop one of those cds in there and you start listening to it and you open up the music and you're looking at the lyrics and you're hearing it sung and the words you hear sung are i will celebrate sing unto the lord sing to the lord a new song I will celebrate singing to the Lord, singing to the Lord a new song with my heart rejoicing, with my mind focusing on him, with my hands raised to the heavens. All I am worshiping him. And then it repeats about seven times. Now, you listen to that. And the tune's great. It is catchy. It's a love beat, but it's not too fanatic, not to scare the old people away. You know, okay, this is good. It's, it's more modern. It's contemporary. Tune's good. But what about the words? Mm. I is the subject 37 times. No attribute or work of God is mentioned. It is an anthem of praise to self. And many churches sing it. Now, if you don't have any discernment, you just go, man, that's a good tune. And yeah, that makes me feel good. Why? Because people who write music today are not theologians and pastors. They're people who want to make money. And so they're writing catchy tunes that make them feel good, that make other people feel good, but they don't make God feel good. And worship is about giving God what he deserves, not giving us what we want. And so what happens is, is you have all these songs. Now, you may be sitting out there. Well, doesn't the Bible say I will like sing or praise in the Bible? Yeah, here we go. Um, I did a little search. You know, you have Bible software. You can do this in a zip. I will sing appears 25 times in the Psalms. I will praise appears six times. I just did a total search and I will, you know, just like the most selfish thing you could throw out there. <laughs> and this is what I discovered. It appears 192 times in the Psalms. Now, there were several Psalms where it appeared over five times. Now, Psalm 119 was one of them because it's gigantic. But let me just give you 
It has everything in there over five times. But let me just give you these Psalms. And and what I want you to do is a little homework this week. I want you to just write down these Psalms and maybe read these Psalms during your quiet time one morning. And I want you to look for the word I will. And then I want you to also look to see if the Psalm talks about any of the attributes, works of God, if God is ever the subject of the Psalm. If it ever gets there, here they are. Psalm 57, Psalm 89, Psalm 101, Psalm 108, and Psalm 132. And I would just encourage you to do that. And you know what you're going to discover? I'm just going to give you a little sneak peeker here that every single of those songs, man, they're major into God. God is the focus. God is the center. God is praised. His works are exalted. He is the center, not the psalmist who's saying, I will, I will praise you for And then all the detail. But if you never get there, then what are you doing? You're talking about who? You. And it's not about you. It's about God. That's what worship's about. God. Now, in the Old Testament, sometimes you read texts about, you know, the solemn assembly. And, you know, a lot of people who like to be very solemn in worship bring that up, which is fine. You know, it's commanded in uh, Numbers 29, 35, Deuteronomy 16, 8. You know, they gather in the solemn assembly. You know what solemn means? It means dignified, serious, not cheerful. You think God told them to do that? Yes. When you get together, be serious, solemn, dignified. And, you know, sometimes when you go to different churches it might seem that they're a little bit too solemn especially if you come to a church where the guy up front sounds like a used car salesman hey people hey let's sing a song Lord! you know it's like whoa what is that you know and if you get used to that and then you come to a church you know like you go to scotland where you have some Scottish Presbyterians who don't use any instruments, who sing three psalms to meter, a cappella, and they all stand there and they recite them in this like canter and then sit down. You may think these people are not only spiritually dead, they're physically dead. (laughs) Why? Because I'm used to more hype. But you know what? Hype has nothing to do with acceptable worship. And those people in Scotland who stand there which what appears to you very stodgy and spiritually dead may be very moved emotionally. They just may understand things you don't. You know, God has killed people, quite a few people when you go through the Old Testament for not worshiping correctly. Killed people. Now just think about that. God kills people who don't worship him correctly. The God we worship here on Sunday morning. Aren't you glad he's not, you know, doing any more examples? It's like, well, let's just make a modern day example and wipe out all the people in this section here who got distracted during worship or whatever. You know, that would be scary, wouldn't it? And we're ta- God is serious about worship. Now, that doesn't mean we can't be cheerful and joyful. Yes, he did call for a solemn assembly at times, but thankfully he doesn't command that for all times. But just because you're solemn doesn't mean you're right with the Lord either. And just because you're happy and expressive and like David dancing before the ark, it doesn't mean you're not worshiping God either. So what does that mean? Well, what it means is, is emotions are not clear indicators of what is acceptable to God or not, because they are fickle because we have different preferences because preferences because we're selfish because we have different amounts of knowledge because we like different things and so our emotions might go up and down but the constant are is it must be in the power of the spirit it must be according to his truth it must be god focused that has to be so you consider somebody like the martyrs of the english reformation Now, you know, here they are. They've been tortured, beat, thrown into a prison, persecuted, starved. And now they're going to march them to the snake to burn them on the way. They're singing songs. And while they're being burnt to death, they're singing songs. Why? Why? Because they chose 
in that circumstance to bring their emotions under the authority of the truth and praise God anyway, though they were going to be and were being burnt at the stake. You know, I think it would be good if for some people, it'd probably be good for all of us. If we were just like jerked out of our comfort zone, you know, thrown into a dungeon, beat, starved, kept in a stinky dungeon away from all the people we know and love and all the things, all the conveniences and just suffered greatly. And then we got out and we got to come to church on Sunday morning. How do you think that would affect your worship? It's like, Lord, I love you. I love being here. I love every song. I'm just so thankful I'm not in prison. That's, woo, that's it. That's it. You should be in hell. You should be burning in hell. And so when you come, it's like, thank you, God, that I'm not in hell. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for my wife and my kids and my job and my ministry and my health and the glories to come. You bring your emotions under. You don't let them drag you around. You drag them around. And even when you don't feel all that swell about the song or the style or the lyrics or whatever, you could go to a church that has bad music, man-centered, terrible lyrics, and still make yourself worship God. That's what God wants. You are responsible to worship. Music doesn't worship. The music leader isn't responsible to make sure you worship. He's trying to encourage it. But listen, you have to stand before God and you have to worship God. You have to worship God with your heart because you love God. And you know what? God's all, always worthy to be loved regardless of what? The circumstance. Is God always a great God? Yeah. Is he always worthy to be praised? Yeah. If you're being burned at the stake, is he worthy to be praised? Yeah. And if you're getting your favorite song and your favorite melody with your favorite worship leader, is he still? Yeah. Okay. So do it. That's it. Now you can see why I could just want to go more on this. It's a huge issue. That's why when people come here, well, I don't like your worship. It's like, <laughs> try and be gracious here. Listen to this tape. Um, a CD, I guess now download this sermon on your MP3 player. Yeah. We just need to get the whole worldly mindset that worship is about attracting me to make me feel a certain way and get it out of there. Worshiping should be with your emotions directed by the truth, but emotions themselves aren't the criteria of the judge of acceptable or unacceptable worship. (sighs) Great question. Secondly, would you provide a summary of how the Roman Catholic view of justification differs from and falls short of the biblical view? Sure. First, let me just say, if you want to get more information on this, you can go two places. One, Website, classes, doctrine of Christ study, lesson on justification. Believe that. Ha, there it is. Secondly, Luke chapter 10, verse 21 through 24, series on sovereignty of God and salvation. There's a whole lesson on justification there. I'm going to give you the very short, sweet view. Verse, uh, version. Biblical justification, first of all, is by faith alone. What that means is you are justified by faith not works. Romans 3.28 says, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Is that pretty clear? Get this one. Romans chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. But to one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. That is really clear too, isn't it? Romans chapter five, verse nine, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Speaking of the blood of Christ, his sacrifice. And this is a very critical verse for another reason. That little phrase there, when he says, having now been justified and In the Greek, there's different verb tenses. One verb tense is what is called a a perfect tense. It describes something that happens in the past and the results of that 
thing that happened in the past, has happened in the past continue to the present. That's what's used here. Having at a point in time been justified in the past and the results of which are now continuing to the present. We have been justified, have been in the past justified by his blood. Therefore, in the future, we shall be saved. Which tells us that justification is a one-time event. It's not a process. It happens at once. No process, no works, no stages of justification. It is what theologians call forensic, and that is a legal declaration that you are right before God because of what Jesus did. When you believe in Jesus, Jesus takes your sin from you and he doesn't just pretend like you didn't commit it and that you aren't guilty, but you really are. He takes it from you. Colossians two fourteen takes it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. But that's not all. He takes his righteousness and he gives it to you of course christ being god is perfectly righteous so he gives you the perfect righteousness of god so that in christ you are now as holy and perfect as god himself and are declared legally by god to be just before him because of the work of christ that's why salvation is so amazing Let's just say that Bill Gates got, you know, on the Internet and did some searches of California residents and just randomly scrolled through one and found your name and got some of his workers on it and found out what your bank account was and just put deposited one billion dollars in your bank account. It's like, well, that's good. Maybe I shouldn't have an unlisted number. Um, So he puts a billion dollars in your account now. You didn't earn that money. You didn't do anything. It was given to you by the grace of Bill Gates. Now, in the same way, when you believe in Jesus, your sins are taken away. And God, by his grace, unearned, undeserved favor, gives you, grants to you, deposits to your account the infinite righteousness of Christ. And you are declared by God to be just before him. And therefore, your salvation is eternally certain because you have been justified. So that is the biblical view. What about the Roman Catholic view? Here it is. Roman Catholics, the only thing that we agree on is that justification is by grace. We believe it's by grace alone. They believe it's by grace plus works. So it's only half an agreement there. The Roman Catholic Church teaches justification is the infusion of sanctifying grace. You may have heard this before. If you're Roman Catholic, you know about this. But if you don't, let me just explain the Roman Catholic Church has what is believes in what is called sacramentalism. They have a sacramental s- system. That is, you do these sacraments, and as you do these sacraments, like going to confession, going to the mass, um, you know, doing penance, you know, all these different things they have. Those things accumulate grace for you, and you are slowly justified. As long as you continue to perform the sacraments, you will continue to have an infusion of grace, which will continue to justify you. But if you stop, if you commit a mortal sin, you perish in hell forever. If you don't get that thing confessed, there is no certainty in the Roman Catholic system. You could be on your deathbed and still not know if you're going to heaven. You don't know. Why? Because it depends upon who? You and your ability to practice what? The sacraments. So, biblical justification, one-time act. Roman Catholic justification, process. Biblical justification ensures a person's place in heaven. Roman Catholic justification, Does not. Biblical justification is by grace through faith alone. Roman Catholic justification is by grace plus works. 
Biblical justification is based on the work of Christ alone. Roman Catholic justification is based on the work of men. And so that's the difference. Next question. The unicorn is mentioned multiple times in the King James Version. I like that. Don't you just like that? The unicorn? Like, you know, it's like, well, get a more modern translation, you know, and then you won't have to deal with it. Um, the unicorn is mentioned in the King James Version. Would you shed some light on this? Uh, some have used it to attack the veracity of the Bible, saying there are no such things as unicorn, and therefore the, the Bible is wrong because it, ha- it says that. Well, why did they translate it what way? Well, first of all, the Hebrew word translated unicorn in the King James Version is ra'im. That appears nine times in the Old Testament. And Old Testament scholars, those who work with the language, don't know what the animal is. They know it's an animal and they know it has horns, plural. And so when the King James translators came across it, they didn't know what it was. And so since they didn't know what it was and they figured maybe it was like an extinct animal, they very foolishly put in the mythological unicorn in there. Um, so it was a bad choice. Okay, that answers that. Then what about as far as attacking the veracity of the Bible? Well, that's never going to stop, is it? I mean, is anybody going to quit attacking the Bible? H.L. Hastings wrote in the 1800s, of the Bible, these words, infidels of 1800 years have been refuting and overthrowing this book, and yet it stands today as a solid rock. Its circulation increases, and it is more loved and cherished and read today than ever before. Infidels, with all their assaults, make about as much impression on this book as a man with a tack hammer would in the pyramids of Egypt. When French monarch was uh, monarch proposed persecution of the Christians in his domain, an old statesman and warrior said, "Sire, the Church of God is an anvil that has worn out many hammers." So the hammers of infidels have been pecking away at this book for ages, but the hammers are worn out, and the anvil still endures. If this book had not been the book of God, men would have destroyed it long ago. Emperors and popes and kings and priests and princes and rulers have all tried their hand at it. They died and the book still lives. John Clifford, a British minister who lived a little after that. I don't know if uh, Hastings took got his inspiration from Clifford or Clifford from Hastings wrote a poem which uses some of the same imagery. Let me just read it to you. Last eve, I passed beside a blacksmith's door and heard the anvil ring, the vesper chime. Then looking in, I saw upon the floor old hammers worn with beating years of time. How many anvils have you had, said I, to wear, to wear and batter all these hammers so? Just one, said he, and then with twinkling eye, the anvil Where's the hammers out, you know? For ages, skeptics' blows have beaten upon, yet through the noise of falling blows was heard. The anvil is unharmed. The hammer's gone. You know, there's people who are always going to attack the Bible, right? They're always going to attack the Bible. Don't worry about it. That's it. The answer, don't worry about it. (laughs) You believe it, let them attack. They're going to wear out. The anvil will remain. Yeah. Let the anvil, the infidels strike their blows and you just keep believing the Bible and do what it says. And by God's grace, they'll come around. Four, it seems to me, last questions, that Christians use the verse, do not cast your pearls before swine out of context. Sometimes that verse seems to be used as an excuse not to witness to difficult people who may not want to hear the gospel. Isn't the context of that verse about disputes and arguments between Christians? Isn't the text saying that we cast pearls before swine when we fight among ourselves? As far as I can see, the context has nothing to do with evangelizing believers. How do you see it? Now, there's only like eight questions there. But uh, it's pretty easy. Turn to Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, if you want to see where the text is that's being referred to. 
The context, the overall general context is the Sermon on the Mount. The theme here is about kingdom living, about being more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees, being perfect like your heavenly father is perfect. And here, Jesus has just talked about in verses 1 through 5, hypocritical versus godly forms of judging. You know, there's that verse that seems like every unbeliever is born having memorized, judge not lest you be judged. And they kind of use it as repellent against Christians who would tell them they're in sin. But pretty much every Bible translation that breaks the Bible up into chapters would say that verse, the, the verse being discussed here um, is not, verse 6, is not related to directly to the preceding context, that is to hypocritical versus unhypocritical judging. It kind of stands alone as just one of another things Jesus is addressing that people need to deal with in order to live holy lives before God. Okay. Now, whenever you look at a text like this, and obviously there's some figurative language here, isn't it? You've got dogs and pearls and swine and trample them and throw them. And you have these things here. How, How do you, how do you interpret this? And so you always start with the literal meaning of the words, ask yourself, what does the literal words mean? And then you move to the figurative meaning. If there is justification to do so in the text, which of course there is here. So let's just talk about some of these literal meanings. What are dogs? Dogs are unclean animals to the Jews. The term dog was used to also describe male prostitutes or homosexuals. And in the Bible, when dog is used, when it's not talking about a literal dog, which is almost always, it's always used in a negative sense, you know, pejorative sense you call some you dog you know um it's it's you know it's a slam and so that's how it's used so we're talking about unclean deviling creatures what are pearls we know what those are some of you women are probably wearing pearl necklaces or bracelets or earrings or whatever pearls are valuable they're considered i think gems Uh, you own pearls they're expensive you want to protect them you don't throw them on the ground let people step on them that's a no-brainer What about swine, pigs, they're unclean animals, Leviticus 11, you can't eat, um, you know, pork, you can't eat pigs, uh, they're unclean, they're defiling. Um, So what do we have here? We have basically two parallel statements, they're almost identical, they're kind of what is called synonymous parallelism, where the first line, two lines are pretty much similar to the second ones are just worded a little bit different. And what do you have here? Well, two parallel statements. What don't give what is holy to dogs, which means don't give what is holy to those things that are defiling and unholy. Secondly, don't throw your pearls, the things of great value before swine, something unclean and unholy and defiling. They're pretty much saying the same thing. Okay. Now the question then is, What has God given us that is of great value and costly, that is a treasure that we have the opportunity of either giving or not giving to other people? And the answer is the scriptures, the word of God, the Bible. Okay. Now, now we're starting to get to where the question is, well, does this have anything to do with evangelism? Absolutely. It does. Absolutely. It does. Because we're talking about the word of God, which contains the gospel. Now, whenever you get into a problem, you always have to start by asking yourself, what do we know for certain? And then move to the exception or it helps you narrow down here. Are we supposed to share the gospel with everybody? Okay. No, great commission. That is just a no brainer, right? Okay. We've got that one answered. We're supposed to share the gospel with everybody. But do you remember when Jesus, what he said in Luke eleven twenty nine? Where it says that the crowds were increasing and began to say this generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for sign, yet no sign will be given it but the sign of Jonah. Why, if Jesus had been doing miracles, did he stop? Because he had already done miracles and they had what? Rejected them. Okay. If you were to look at Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 and following, you'll see where the disciples come up to Jesus and say, Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? I mean, we can't even figure them out. I mean, if you're trying to get these people saved, then why are you speaking to them in parables? And you remember what Jesus said? He said this to you. It has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, it has not been granted forever has to him more will be given. 
and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have even what he does have shall be taken away. Therefore, I speak to them in parables because while seeing they do not see and while hearing they do not hear and while and nor do they understand in their case. And then he quotes the prophecy of Isaiah, which is what he just said, so that they wouldn't believe, understand, repent and be healed. Think what? Why would Jesus keep the truth from people? This is why. Because at the first part of Matthew, he spoke to them in clear, direct, plain language. And while he was speaking them in clear, direct, plain language, he was also doing miracles. And they rejected the clear, plain teaching accompanied by miracles. So then parables, parables. Why? Because he didn't want to throw his pearls before swine. He didn't want to throw what is holy before dogs. Do you remember what we learned from Luke chapter 10, verse 21 and 22? I'll remind you, it was a long time ago. Jesus said at that time, Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent. Why would Jesus praise God for hiding the truth? You You can listen to the whole series if you want. I did a lot of sermons on that little piece. The whole point is, is he had spoken to them in clear, plain, direct language. And they rejected, rejected, rejected while Jesus was doing miracles. And pretty soon they began to scoff and blaspheme God saying, you're doing this by the power of Satan. Why, by what authority to do that? And when it got to that point, sorry, you don't get any more. I'm not going to throw any more pearls in front of you so you can trample them underfoot. Why did Jesus tell his disciples in Matthew 10, 14, Mark 6, 14, Luke 9, verse 5. You can listen to that sermon also to shake the dust off their feet. Remember that I send you into town. I want you to do some miracles. I want you to preach the gospel. After you preach the gospel, after you do the miracles, if they reject you, what do you do? You leave. You don't preach the gospel to them anymore. In Acts chapter 13, verses 48 through 52, Paul and Barnabas are preaching the word of God. A bunch of Gentiles come to Christ. It says the word of the Lord was spreading in the whole region. Verse 50, but the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook the dust off their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. Acts chapter 18, verse 5 and 6. We read, but when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word of God, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, substitute in there, trampled underfoot, began to turn to tear him to pieces, rejected the teaching of God's word, he shook out his garments And said, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Praise God. Here we are. So why would you ever hold back the truth of the gospel? When you've explained the gospel to somebody, it's been clear. And as you're trying to explain to them, they begin to get angry. They begin to blaspheme God. They begin to trample the word of God underfoot. Find somebody else to share the gospel with. Find somebody else. It doesn't mean you can't go back to that person and try again, but go somewhere else. Go somewhere else. If they keep rejecting the truth, if they use it to blaspheme God, go somewhere else. That's what is instructed. That's what's modeled. You don't don't sit there, I don't care if you hate my guts. I'm going to keep telling you and keep telling you. And No, shake the dust off your feet. Take out your garment and go like this. And they're going to go, what are you doing? You'll figure it out after you die. Okay, well, those are the questions. I'm sorry for those of you I didn't answer your questions. Maybe next year, the garments of Zephaniah, chapter 1, verse 10. Maybe we'll get there. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word and your truth. I just thank you for all the questions which really reveal a heart eager to know and you know, know your truth and just to have understanding and some hard things. We thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us to be worshipers in spirit and truth, that our emotions, our mind would be directed towards you because you are the great God.
Father, we pray that we would rejoice that we have been justified by faith. We are thankful that your word is the anvil that has worn out many hammers. And Father, we're also just thankful that you have called us by grace through faith to stand before you to preach your word to all the nations, to all creation. And Father, you've always also told us that when people begin to trample it underfoot and blaspheme it, to move on and find somebody else. So help us to have the wisdom to know when to do that and when not to. Father, we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.